0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.
1: How do we define life? Is life the rule rather than the exception in the universe? What about the multiverse?
2: Hello and welcome to the 1007th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOON AM and FM Radio in Winsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on YouTube. I'm Ben and that was Paul and today we bring you back an old friend for a new journey. Mark D'Antonio, a longtime friend of the show and valued member of our investigative team holds a degree in astronomy and is uh, the chief photo and video analyst for the largest aerial anomaly, oh, if I can speak, organization on Earth, the Mutual UFO Network or MUFON. He is the host of Sky Tour on KGRA Radio and is the creator of and host of Sky Tour live stream with Mark D'Antonio on YouTube, which highly recommend. Uh, this program originates uh, from Mark's very own. Uh, Observatory in Arizona. Mark is the CEO of FX models a model making and visual uh, special effects company. Mark is on TV a lot <laughs> especially uh, in the proof is out there UFO witness NASA's unexplained files uh, what on Earth and many other shows you could just google them and you can see a myriad of appearances. Uh, in addition, Mark worked uh, with special effects genius Doug Trumbull uh, to develop the UFO T.O.G. Uh, photography system, uh, which we will ask him about today. And his website, SkyTourLive.com.
1: Mark D'Antonio, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Hey,
0: Paul. How are you? It's so good to see you and Ben. Uh, it's it's been uh, been a minute since we've been together, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. A, a couple
1: of weeks. You were with on our thousandth show.
2: Yes, time flies
1: when in, you're yeah. having fun.
2: Yes, indeed. Well, I guess we'll, we'll we'll hop right into it. So you finally have a bookmark. Um, a bookmark. Uh-huh. A bookmark. <laughs> yeah, <that's funny. laughs> I didn't. I didn't See even. Did there, I though. didn't even try to do a double entendre. Anyway, um, so in the book, uh, the populated universe, uh, you trace the origins of the universe, the solar system, and the possible origins of life, etc. Yeah. Uh, but. If the universe is populated, um, do we mean by life as we know it, or do we have to redefine the term life? That's a really good question,
0: and in fact, Paul is fond of saying life as we don't know it. Okay, um, and I, I want to address that for a second, because one of the problems with when you consider life in the universe is what's it going to be made of? What chemicals, what elements, and what would make it consider, be considered life? Uh, In in my view, Ben and Paul, one of the things that I think is important is the flexibility of atoms to do the job required uh, that life would ask of it. And the elements in our periodic table have their own limits. One way or another, there's limits. But I will say that of all the elements in the periodic table, carbon is the most well-suited for doing the processing of life. And the reason is because carbon can make and break bonds with ease, and it can bond with more things than any other element in the periodic table. In fact, it's known as the grandfather of elements because it is the element that, uh, you know, can do the most flexible processes that life would require. It's also the fourth most abundant element in the entire universe. The third most abundant is oxygen, believe it or not the second helium and the first you might expect is hydrogen and so uh together um carbon and oxygen and many other uh elements make up planets and make up you know uh, everything we know that life is so uh you know if you look in the columns of the periodic table okay uh what's underneath an element is the next most likely element similar to the element above in in ways so uh, below carbon is silicon. So silicon, people say, oh, well, there could be silicon-based life because it's right below carbon. And indeed, silicon does share some capabilities. But silicon makes robust bonds that don't like to be separated. You know, sand, silicon dioxide, a silicon atom with two oxygen atoms on it. So actually, as a side thing, you it's kind of interesting to uh, think that as you walk on the beach, you're walking on uh Two out of three of the uh, atoms you're walking on are gas, in terms of oxygen. <laughs> so it's kind of funny to think about sand that way, right? Uh, but the silicon atoms much bigger, obviously, and the atom, the oxygen atoms are smaller. But still, right? You're walking on two out of three atoms that are gas on a, on a beach. Um, so, uh, but life is interesting. Uh, when we look in the universe, we see we we see carbon everywhere. We see water everywhere. Uh, uh the James Webb Space Telescope is very successful at characterizing atmospheres of exoplanets, and some exoplanets turn out to have lots of water in them and uh so and some exoplanets have turned out to have no atmosphere at all okay so the uh, James Webb is helping us peer into the darkness and see what life might be out there but I have to say you know uh, you know, and I know Paul is is fond of the you know, uh, life as we don't know it uh phraseology and I'm still open to that, but um I do think that if there's life out there it's probably going to be based on carbon because carbon hmm. seems to be the most uh effective at uh, doing the processes that life would require of it uh and that's just my feeling paul so um you know, I, I still like the phrase, though, life as we don't know it. I I actually use that. It's all your fault I use it.
1: Love <laughs> yeah. well, has stolen a few of your lines over the years, Bart. Um, there's one thing I was uh, kind of surprised you didn't mention in the book, uh, although you you kind of hint at it. That's uh, what's generally known as the anthropic principle, yeah. um, which is, you know, the conditions... Uh, I don't know if i buy this entirely, but the conditions are just right on Earth for the the uh, kind of life that we know, and uh, particularly for human life, um, although humans have never really struck me as belonging here. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're standing upright, <clears throat> our, our stomach and genitals are exposed, I mean, it's It doesn't fit. But nevertheless, uh, the conditions are right for us. Do you believe in the anthropic principle, and can you explain it a little better than I can?
0: Well, I think that it's very important to understand, Paul, that we look exactly the way we look uh, because of five major extinction events that happened here, Mm. right? Uh, Two of them were... Uh, impact related that shrouded the atmosphere in dust for years and also, um, uh, well, I should say at least one of them was fully impact related. There's several questionable impacts that, that may have contributed to some extinctions. But five major extinction events overall, one for sure being in the impact at the uh, Cretaceous boundary there, the Paleogene. Uh, 65 million years ago that killed the dinosaurs, as everybody will know and talk about. Um, but uh, we have to understand that back in the Permian period, 252 million years ago, uh, there were creatures evolving then, of course there were lots of creatures, and there were some creatures that were going to be potentially heading into the path of, um, of the mammalian uh, strands of life. And <clears throat> those precursors to mammals uh were wiped out when a massive volcanic eruption caused the uh gigatons of carbon dioxide to enter the atmosphere and all at once and the temperature on the planet rose 21 Celsius in just a few weeks and that killed off oxygen uh bearing uh, oxygen creating uh, plankton in the oceans it killed off other life and so uh, things that happened uh, fairly rapidly the domino effect collapsed the life tree and ninety six percent of all life was extinguished because of that now what if that didn't happen okay what if that didn't happen we'll talk about that in a second but what about what happened after what happened after was there were niches that were now opened up for all this life that went extinct right and those niches were conveniently filled by creatures that didn't feel the effects so much of this rapid rise in temperature and carbon dioxide influx. In and those creatures turned out to be the creatures that would become dinosaurs. And it's at that point when the age of the dinosaurs began. And in later years, the carbon dioxide balanced out. Oxygen was very prolific. It went up to over 30% in the atmosphere. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot from 21 okay, okay, percent. But well, I'll tell you, though, that's a major difference. So everything can... Uh, breathe better, can grow faster, can grow bigger, and that's what happened. So animals that might normally be smaller because of environmental limits and atmospheric limits on their their uh, abilities to do certain processes uh, for life were uh, supplemented with basically... A steroid, basically, and not really, but you know what I mean, a steroid of oxygen. So they grew bigger, faster, farther. They could move farther and, and do much more. They had, of course, bigger appetites, and they required more vegetation, the plant eaters, and the meat eaters required more meat to eat. So uh, everything got bigger, and but at that scale, the earth was in balance, okay? And then comes along, and by the way, that lasted, obviously, for over 150 million years, Right? And then 65 million years ago, the asteroid impact, uh, called the Chicxulub impactor, right, off the Yucatan, that asteroid threw enough silt and dust into the air to cause a nuclear winter for years. And so over time, the plant eaters lost their food source because the plants died, and the meat eaters lost their food source, so they died. And it was a chain, a cascading chain. And although it wasn't nearly as deep an extinction as the Permian period, okay, it was enough to cause the dinosaurs to uh, go the way of the dinosaurs, so to speak, okay, as they always say, right? And the things that were left waiting in the wings were these small creatures, not as severely affected at that point, and those were the things that would then become mammals. So it seems that back in the Permian period, mammalian creatures were rising to the forefront pre-mammals and they got wiped out but they never fully go away so now here 65 million years ago they rise to the top once again because this seems to be a natural progression now there's only two data points on that and there's a huge string of you know a uh, radiative adaptation it's called that shows all kinds of life forms branching off of one or another um, however We're here because of that, so we look a particular way. And you said that the planet is—you know—we're not really meant to be here. It doesn't look like we're we're meant to be here, and as you mentioned, those characteristics. But I have to say this: um, everything that we are is again the result of that past evolution that's occurred on the planet, right? However, when you look at how we react to our sun and the light coming down here from the sun, well, people get skin cancer because the sun's ultraviolet energy is too strong sometimes. Our atmosphere luckily prevents it from reaching the ground. But if we wipe out ozone, then that gives us problems, you know. And, yes, we're in control of that as human beings. But if you think about it, our look and everything that we are is because of our circuitous path we took through evolution and all these major extinction events that occurred between then and now. So a creature on another world may not have had as many extinction events or might have had more. All right? So they're going to look very, very, very different from us. They're not going to have any resemblance to us at all. So as far as... Uh, Thinking that the universe may not have any other life, or the Earth is well suited for us, uh, our our planet exists in spite of our sun. That's the way I put it. Because uh, this this world is not considered a super habitable world. It's considered habitable, average. Uh, it could be a little less habitable. It could actually be a lot more habitable, but it's not. Hmm. We have we have tectonic plates that cause earthquakes that kill beings, creatures all over the planet. We have volcanoes that kill creatures and beings all over the planet. We have hurricanes and tornadoes that kill creatures and beings all over the planet. So we have a lot of mitigating factors. We have solar energy that kills creatures through ultraviolet exposure and uh, you know cancers. And if you think about this, the variation we have of life on the planet could very well be in part due to the many different mutations. Remember I mentioned that radiative adaptation where all of these mm. different radiative uh, you know fingers come off from one common ancestor
2: mm.
0: well that radiative adaptation could be the result of mutations caused by our Sun so it seems like the planet if you and I, I don't I don't consider it a living thing but you could characterize it as a living thing because it reacts to things that happen to it and counters it with natural processes that have evolved over millennia but if you think about it that radiation uh, comes in, strikes a creature, mutates it, so when it gives birth, the next creatures are mutated. They're different, a little bit. Their DNA is slightly mutated, okay? And being that there's DNA in every single living thing, I think it's important to understand that DNA can be mutated by radiation. And so that mutation, if it was something that helps the creature succeed, then uh, it will then give birth itself and its new characteristics will be transferred radiatively down the line as new mutations occur. And that, there's many, many lines of life that have come and gone that no one will ever know about, Okay, millions of them, all right? And there's those those few left in the middle that are coming through and rising to the top, and that's what we have for life on our planet at the moment, at this point in evolution. It hasn't
2: stopped just because we know about it. It's still happening, Mm. see? So there's a really interesting point, that you kind of brought up that I, I think kind of gets overlooked a lot of times. Um, I'm going to take a quick half step back here. I, I took a – I, I got to say, when I was in community college, I learned way more than regular college because I feel like all the professors that were there were like kind of at the twilight of their careers and they were like, eh, I still want to teach. So they all had all the all these really interesting interesting thoughts and, and whatever. And I had this really interesting uh, sociology professor who he, he gave a really interesting talk on the idea of overpopulation. And he was like, who here thinks that there's overpopulation? Everybody raises their hands. And he was like, you're wrong. And we were like, well, wh- why? Like, it's everybody, know- everybody knows, quote unquote, that there's overpopulation. And he was like, I will show you why you're wrong. And he brings up a map. And he brings up a map of population densities. And he's <laughs> like, you see all these empty places? And we were like, yes. And he was like, no one lives there. And he was like, because it's not habitable. And he's like, he's like, maybe somewhere down the line we could make it habitable. But he's like, but right now it's not. He's like, how many people live in Antarctica? And he's like, Psh. he's like, anyone want to guess? And it was some like ridiculously <laughs> low number and it was mostly researchers, right? It was,
0: it was, yeah, right.
2: And he's like, all right, how about northern Canada? And, it, <laughs> and he was like, what about deserts? And he was pointing out all these places, and he was like, you see, population density is a statistic. And he's like, statistics can be manipulated. And, he, and that's when I learned that statistics can be wrong sometimes if they're used for specific purposes. But anyway, um, it's deceptive, and it's tricks. You can use it to trick people. Anyway, yeah. di- different, different, different topic, different time, but it's a really interesting point because there are all these very – Inhabitable places that are 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 all around us, right? Even deciduous forests. You know, we as soft little inner city people cannot, you know, would not be able to survive in that. I maybe mean, we would. Who knows? But you know, that's that's a different topic, different day.
0: If you had to, you could.
2: You could. And and I I think maybe there would be some sort of argument for in instinct kicking in, perhaps. But mm-hmm. there's a really interesting point that I wanted to bring up about this, which is. The idea of us resembling other creatures in the universe, right? And mm-hmm. and I, I think that there's a really important argu- argument to be made that one's environment shapes them not just physically but mentally, intellectually, morally, right? So if we're if we're seeing these creatures from you know the Andromeda system, you know, and we're we're meeting them, we're interacting with them. Who's to say that we would share a similar moral structure? Exactly so. That's, that's my, my biggest gripe with, with, the, with the whole, oh, yeah, they're here to
0: help us argument. Yeah, they, we project our morality on them, and that's just the wrong thing to do, right? You know, now, as far as your professor uh, that you had in the community college, I would have said to him something back after he made that argument about you know that we're
2: not overpopulated. I would well, he didn't say that. He didn't say we're not overpopulated. His his argument was we're not we're populating very specific areas. That was his well, argument. That's true. Okay, let's 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 say one thing about that though,
0: if I could. Uh, if you consider that the planet can support a certain number of discrete beings, uh, it can support, uh, right now we're at eight billion people and uh, there's actually evidence to suggest that the oxygen levels on the planet are actually slightly declining long-term. Woof. What's that mean? It means that the plankton and the Amazon forests and the other forested areas on the planet that are contributing to the oxygen are not being able to keep up with the oxygen consumers on the planet. Now, if that's the case, it means that the planet is getting overpopulated for the capability of supporting life in general. And that over time, the oxygen levels may become depleted enough that we might have to substantially supplement the oxygen with other processes that we create to do it. Like the same process that uh, the um, the Perseverance rover on Mars did a test with called the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Experiment, MOXIE, M-O-X-I-E, mm. Moxie took the CO2 in the atmosphere and converted it to oxygen, okay, which is a big step because it means that we can go to Mars and set up a dome and put oxygen in it that we don't have to bring, all right, and and make it constantly. Um, but one of the byproducts is carbon monoxide, which is a carbon atom and an oxygen atom, and, and that, of course, is not good for us, uh, so – uh, we'd have to deal with that too. But we are on a closed ship, remember, the Earth. It's a closed spacecraft, just a big one and uh a natural one. So we would have to figure out how to balance the oxygen production with the life forms that are using it. And, and you'd have to do that with a with a base. And if you do a base on the moon, you can only support a certain number of colonists before you have to now increase oxygen production to bring more in. And that's on a large scale, that's the Earth.
1: So, you've already mentioned exoplanets, which are planets beyond our solar system. How many exoplanets do we know about, and what are super-Earths?
0: Okay, well, I I would love to, to talk about that, Paul, because um, the number of exoplanets we know about right now, the number is approximately 7,000. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a lot, uh, but... It's certainly not as many as there are out there, because this is a little factoid that keep, people keep throwing out. Um, and it's, it's likely true, <clears throat> but we don't have a way of confirming this yet. <clears throat> but the fact is, you hear people say, there's more planets in the universe than there are stars. And whereas that gives you this shock and awe reaction, it might actually be true, <sighs> okay? Um, it might not just be hype, and so... There's a lot of stars out there that have multiple planets, and so the fact that people say this, it, this could actually be true, all right, and that's interesting. So now, but but exoplanets uh, that are called super Earths, they're a little different. Okay, that's a sort of a misnomer. A super Earth means it could still be a gas giant, but a smaller, you know, smaller planet. That's all a gas uh, giant. And so, gas giant and Earth don't seem to go together. But let's say gaseous, okay? A planet like a t- tiny Jupiter or you know Uranus, slightly smaller than Uranus or Neptune, okay, which are smaller. Uh, and and those could be gas giants. Those might be called super Earths. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're just big planets with lots of land and an atmosphere that we could all breathe. And I know uh, that's not what you think, but uh, for the people listening, but the super Earth concept is very interesting. We found planets that are 1.2 times the size of the Earth. That's ridiculously larger than the Earth is, obviously. Uh, and that's only one point two. How about some that are four and five? And there are. But think about this: <clears throat> When you have a planet that, that's, that, that that is that big, it's that much more massive, and that means that its gravity is that much stronger, <laughs> okay? So if we want to go there, we could probably land on it, but we might not be able to escape its uh its uh, gravitational pull to leave again. So we got to be really sure we want to go there, right? If we were to do that. Um, and there are there are planets out there called super Earths that may be rocky, may have an atmosphere, and may be habitable. And if they're big enough, it might also be that the technology to leave those planets has yet to be developed by any occupants there. Because it's going to require more than chemical rocketry to leave a planet with that big a gravity. <clears throat> and that's the thing uh, that it could be one of the reasons why we haven't heard from any uh, civilizations that we know of, all right? I mean, the congressional hearings were rather interesting this past week. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that... The, the super-Earth is, is a candidate, but if you're a civilization on a super-Earth, in summary, it's going to take you a little more technology to leave that planet. And if they're at, at our development level, then they're probably a ways from being able to get off the planet uh, if the gravity is large enough. Yeah. They can be trapped in their own world.
1: Okay, well, let's take our mid-show break. You're listening to Behind <laughs> the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on W-O-O-N. a.m. and 99.5 FM in New England's lovely Blackstone River Valley. And our great guest and good friend, Mark D'Antonio. So stick with us. Calling all classmates from Woonsocket High School, class of 1978. This is Linda Seneco. We're hoping that you'll help us come and celebrate our 45th class reunion at Bella Restaurant in Boroughville. It's going to be Friday, September 15th from 5 to 10. And we're looking forward to sharing all the old memories and the new memories that we can create. If you have questions or concerns or would like to come, please contact me at 401-766-3134. Hope to see you there. We're local and live at 995-FM, O-N-A-M and FM. Uh, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno at WOON Radio AB and FM. And let's take a question from Phil in Savannah. Yes. And if you would be so kind.
2: Sure thing. So mm-hmm. Phil writes to us a couple of questions, so we'll go one at a time. Uh, and the first question is, when you speak about the abundant universe, are you speaking of the universe in all of its parallel universes or just the ones we see with our five senses or both? that's a great question
0: um you know the concept of the multiverse is something that i've been uh diving in and out of ha 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 It's sort of a yeah. joke but not really right
1: you <laughs> um, know all about it
0: yeah i know right it's like we're always there um but we don't know if there's a multiverse yet we don't know if there's another universe out there we suspect there could be uh the concept for parallel universes the 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 evidence for parallel universes Maybe there, but we just don't have the ability to to see it yet in the same way that we don't have the ability to see if string theory is valid. Mm. Um, for me, string theory is very important because that's how creatures elsewhere get here that's the only way they can get here is through the rigorous application of uh, some of the tenets that live within string theory uh that's for another show though um and yeah. that that's that's
2: something different uh, yeah, what, what was, was it? it yeah. What was the second question there, Ben? So the second question is, uh, the day of missing time you had when you uh, got on the bus from Burr oh, yes. Pond in Torrington and then simply got off the bus, you don't remember the whole day in between, uh, When, where do you think you went? More importantly, why? Somehow it all ties in.
0: Good question. I can't answer because I don't know. I've actually... I don't want to call it resistant or afraid, but I've never done any regression hypnosis with anyone to find out if there was something I may remember. Uh, and where do you, where do I think I went? I don't know. All I know is that I got off the bus, as you know the story, you related. Mm. And, uh, I remember getting back on the bus. It seemed like no time had passed, and I was being told to get back on the bus. And I still had my lunch that I hadn't eaten. And, I felt hungry but didn't eat the lunch, and then that night I had these uh, convulsions and seizures, and they brought me to the hospital right away, and they they didn't know what it was, um, and then it never happened again, uh, you know. So there's odd things that happen. Um, I don't know why. I don't think I'm special in any way. I just think that just like that unlucky elk in the herd gets tagged, okay, Okay, that's the, okay, Frank got tagged today. He did. Oh, yeah, and he just knocked him right out and stuck this big thing around his neck.
1: <laughs>
0: right? You don't know, right? So I don't know, uh, I don't know what it was for. I don't know what it did. I think I was just the unlucky one that got, uh you know, the experience that I can't remember.
1: <laughs> well, I think you came to Rhode Island and walked on the beach with all the gas molecules. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> hey, well, Paul, you're right. You know, there's no doubt about it.
1: Okay, uh, in the book, Mark, you do mention panspermia. Yes. Uh, the idea that uh, life is uh, pretty common and uh, life-building molecules and elements are spread by asteroids and comets and what were commonly thought of as gas clouds. Um, can you talk a bit about that and is it possible that since we all might descend from the same elements, that uh, humanoids may be rather common around the galaxy, you know, depending on the uh, variations that you mentioned, uh, extinction events, gravity, all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that, that's an excellent question, Paul, because you know when you look at, uh, how we develop, we develop along a very special circuitous path, that's correct. Um, but panspermia means life came here from somewhere else, uh, or at least the building blocks of life came here from somewhere else. And that we know is partially true. We know that's true. And that's because the Earth has been hit by asteroids, the Earth has been hit by uh, comets. Uh, As recently as the Tunguska event, that was a small comet, it looks like, that came in and did an air burst in the atmosphere. So that being the case, I think that it's very likely that life, at least the building blocks, in my view, came here uh, from uh, other places, potentially even within our solar system. Now, we know that extraterrestrial asteroids have been seen. Avi Loeb, who I've worked with a few times on on programs at Harvard, Avi uh, believes this as well, and he says that we can't ignore the possibilities that these are potential extraterrestrial uh, involvement, right? Well, in the same way, if that asteroid struck the Earth, and let's say it came from a distant star uh, where it escaped because of some gravitational uh whipping maneuver that whipped it out of the solar system its star system and it struck here uh, maybe it could have brought some extraterrestrial um, building blocks that might have been in deep stasis you know from being frozen in interstellar space you know uh the tardigrade is an excellent example of an animal that can do cryptobiosis where it actually can be dried right out and 50 years later be revived as if nothing happened and it carries on like nothing happened now all you have to do is add water it's like just add water and life <laughs> right you know just add water and pour right well it's, it uh, that that's kind of interesting to me so it might be that the deep freeze interstellar or interplanetary uh, might be responsible uh for preserving what may have then come here crashed here and assisted and or supplemented the life that then uh, blossomed on this planet and it's interesting to see how that works and and you referred to uh in, before the show the toilet paper uh what yeah. did I do which is the history of the earth on a roll of toilet paper and uh I go in the audience as you've seen me doing multiple times oh, yeah. and I, it really Unro- works. It does. You unroll it out there, and you see that a lot of nothing happened. Yeah,
1: Ben got to hold it one time.
0: Oh, yes. That's, that's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of nothing happens, but in the last uh, few sheets of toilet paper, comprising the last 300 million years or so, 500 million years, you start to see things happening. And at the end, you're you're looking at an, a, a distance of about a, a foot and a half, maybe, to where dinosaurs died, that, and then the other end is the present day. So you realize that dinosaurs dying was a real recent event in the Earth's geologic history <clears throat> and evolutionary history and not ancient history.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, hu- human time frames provide that mental the metaphor that it was ancient history, but it wasn't. It was recent history. So could it have been that uh, supplementary material Hit before humans were even here to take history, right? And 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 assisted in the building of life, absolutely. And it probably did, you know. But it didn't bring, I don't think, creatures or microbes. I think that it might have brought uh, uh, potentially special combinations of amino acids, which could have led to proteins, maybe that, that could have led to uh, uh, replicating uh You know chains that led to what we call life, and you know that special thing in between, even in the book I mentioned this uh in in the book i I say you know that we know all these things that led up to where life began, but we don't know what's in between here we don't know how the thing we call life began and when something became self aware we don't know that, and I think that's just the most amazing thing, which I absolutely love,
1: yeah. Uh, you mentioned in the book something that really took my fancy and that was sea monkeys <laughs> yes. now you're a little i'm a little bit older than you are but i remember the tv commercials for these sea monkeys so called mm-hmm. you got to be added water they came to life i i yeah. never, i should have bought some i never did but that's a, a, an example of what you were saying
0: yes that's the same thing where they're basically trip. Yes, that's right. They're sitting in stasis, with so basically the cryptobiosis. And when you add water, uh, then all of a sudden you see that they come to life. It's it's not that. It's just that they've been reactivated, okay? And mm. they come out of their, their, little, their little, I'll call them eggs for lack of a better term, and they end up uh, living. Uh, so it's very interesting how that works. So is it possible that similar machinery if you call it that biological machinery was shipped here yeah i can't say no i tend to think it's more at the lower level but you know what there's no there's no evidence to say that it didn't happen so i i wouldn't be arrogant enough to to say no it didn't happen life developed here entirely i mean it could have developed here entirely but i don't want to go down that arrogant path i've been fighting arrogance and science for decades
1: oh yeah well, uh, continuing on to the uh, theme of other civilizations, I guess, can you talk about the uh, Kardashev levels? Not, not the Kardashian levels, the <laughs> yeah. Kardashev.
0: Yeah, the Kardashian levels are a different thing entirely. Now,
1: <laughs> well,
0: you know, the 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 whole the whole um, Kardashev thing is it. The, there's several levels, right? There's It's Kardashevel Level 1, 2, 3, and 4, and I talk about beyond. Um, And what are they? Well, Kardashevel Level 1, it all has to do with how much energy that uh, a civilization can utilize and turn into something that they need. Okay, for instance, at Kardashevel Level 1, they may be able to use all of the resources of their planet and have sustainable technologies. They don't deplete anything on their planet. Uh, we're probably three hundred years from a level one civilization. And to be fair, okay, uh, level two they can start branching out and start so use the solar system. And at three, they've gone interstellar, found other ways to get there, which I think I know how they do it. <laughs> okay, that's mm-hmm. the other that's the other show. Okay, yeah. um, I've been lecturing about this all over the country. Actually, in fact, I I just did it. My um, gosh, where was I? I'll, I'll, do it, I'll be doing next in August, uh, par- partly out in Edinburgh, Texas, at the UFO Festival there next month. Deep. But, yeah, it's going to be fun. But the point is, uh, so Carnage Level 4, okay, now you're talking about being able to manage multiple stars and then potentially moving out deeper into the galaxy and at levels beyond, which are only roughly defined, you would use the entire galaxy. Are there any species out there doing that? I don't know if the universe has been uh, around long enough for a species to get to that point. Because the universe...
1: That's a good point.
0: The universe is trying to kill uh, everything. It doesn't... It's a very, very hostile environment. So, it's it's sort of trying to kill us every which way we turn. So, in spite of the universe, in spite of the sun, we're still here. And I think that's what's going to be playing out with other civilizations. In spite of the... Natural catastrophes, the ast- errant asteroid strike—they're still going to persist. So, you know, they make progress, right? And then, bam! And, and oh, now we get dumped down. They got to try up to go up that ramp again. Then, bam! They get knocked back down. As long as they don't get down to the baseline here, then they're probably good to to come back at some point and just. So, their their progress is going to look like this, right? It's going to look like this. You know, they're going to be, you know, going up and down throughout their history, and hopefully trending upward. Yeah. you know we're trending upward
2: you know so here's so I guess before we, we burn up the hour here we're getting very close to it um tell tell us where you can, where people can find out more about you your your various programs and your book everything you want to you want to spill it spill it mark And
1: sky tour live too
2: yeah i mean how much time do we have no i'm just kidding um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i realize i mean i do a lot of things but then again you guys know me i my energy level is like you know, so I've got to sure. be doing always something, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, look, uh, I started the remote observatories called Live Livestream. It started with one uh, eight-foot dome on my front lawn of my property here in Connecticut. And that dome is gone. I sold it because we outgrew it. And that telescope for it is right, right there behind me. You can see it just barely right there. See it right there? That's Very the nice. telescope. And uh it's being, I just finished rehabbing it, and it's going to go back in a new building out here uh in the coming months. But we did manage to create a whole new building out in Arizona in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, we're going to go live tonight if it's clear out there. We've got monsoons right now, so we only get like a day a week when it's, you know, clear out there. And then then we go back to having 300 clear nights a year, you oh, know. Huh. But, um uh so skytourlive.org or skytourlive dot com. We are a non profit organization. Um, we have a Patreon which you can join and support us. I mean, you know, I I take people on nightly journeys. You know, I I gotta say guys, I I've not seen anyone doing what we do. And that's always a bad thing to say because then someone's gonna say, Hey, let's do it, right? I don't know. But, but <laughs> I guess the more the merrier. Um we've been taking people on tours of the universe for several years now. And we're looking currently at a supernova that's occurring in the galaxy that's right about there at, at nine o'clock in the night, uh here in Arizona. So uh is uh you know the location. Skyter live stream with Mark D'Antonio is on YouTube. That's our channel. We have Rumble, we have Trovo, Twitch, Facebook as well, uh and Twitter. So um you know, join us, you know, and, and I think that's just a, a great place. And if somebody is looking for any uh, visual effects or model work, well, they can contact me at fxmodels.com. dot com. But skyralive dot org and skyralive dot com uh, is the place to find us, you know. And you can find the book on Amazon if you want the populated universe.
1: Yep, neat. So, it, um, tell us about UFO tag.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Doug Trumbull, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago. I mean, I love that man. He was, the, he was, he was probably the kindest person I've ever known. And uh, before he passed, uh, we met like 10 years ago, and we started talking about a way to create a system to look at UFOs in the sky and find UFOs using electronic systems that are not coupled with human imagination, human expectation, and so we made some progress uh we we actually uh made up a design got a design going doug got sick and he passed away and then that put the project on a, a hold and then uh i started talking to avi Loeb about galileo project and so uh he's doing something that i think is right along the same vein and doug always said he doesn't care who does it as long as somebody finds the answer so um i'm hoping to work more with the Galileo team in the future because I think it would be a uh, the proper way to do this. You know when you have a chair of an astrophysics department telling you uh, that we can't uh, we can't dismiss the possibilities that's a huge leap, a huge leap don't you think? because um, you normally get people in in academia not even wanting to admit it. Like the director of my observatory when I got my astronomy degree, uh, I told him I think it's a populated universe, which is where the title came from, you know, the book. And he kind of laughed and explained, you know, that that's, uh, you know, just get back in the dome and do your work and leave Captain Kirk to us, is what he told me, if you remember. Uh. <laughs> well, uh, he ended up seeing that there were a lot of exoplanets and a lot of possibilities, so he softened in later years. But the fact is, um, I think it is a populated universe, and we can't dismiss the possibilities. I'm not saying that they're out there and, and by the hundreds of billions of civilizations. I'm saying we don't know, but the evidence indicates they could be, and we can't dismiss that possibility.
1: Mm. So, um... Interesting. In a few weeks, we're doing a show on the congressional hearings. Oh, yeah. Some blockbuster stuff that's taken place over the last week. Mm. But in your final chapter of the book, you get into the search for alien life, including SETI, which our mutual friend, Stanton Friedman, referred to as silly effort to investigate, uh, <laughs> S-E-T-I. Uh, you're also a UFO researcher. Um, life being out there is one thing, but visiting us is something else, unless they're using some wormholes or multiverse of ways to do it. What's your opinion on that?
0: Hi, very good question, and uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I won't give you the... the I, I can't give you the entire uh, lowdown, but I can tell you this. Um, it really comes down to understanding the four fundamental forces in quantum mechanics, which is the strong force, the weak force, the electromagnetic force, and then gravity. Gravity's that outlier. We don't have a whole lot. It doesn't really you know, fit in our standard model in the same way as the other three. Um, no, Einstein didn't think we'd ever see gravitational waves, but we do. And uh, the wave and particle nature of the other forces are interesting because they show us that there is a way to describe them as waves and a way to describe them as particles. This, like, a, like light, a photon or a wave, it's, it has duality. Well, gravity now has a wave. We're waiting for the graviton, mm. right? And if gravitons can be found and exist, um, and CERN might discover them in the coming years because they're building an accelerator to, to, to look at these particular particles that might uh, show promise to that regard uh, called the Kaluza klein uh, gravitons. Um, then, uh, coupled with Lawrence Livermore's discovery, that they can sustain a, a fusion reaction in a small containment... And, and still have to put too much energy in to get out, but they're con- they're actually sustaining it. That's the big development. Uh, having done that, if you marry those two things, a discovery and, and, and analysis of these particular particles with the Livermore uh, decide, uh, uh, work on creating a fusion reactor, you only need a fusion reactor to create the particles that CERN is wanting to talk about. Marry those two together in a UFO, okay, or a spacecraft, and now you have an endless source of these particles that can take you into a place where you can then navigate through the universe in minutes, not tens of thousands of years. Mm. And sounds like science fiction, but it's not.
1: You yeah. <laughs> know,
2: it's pretty cool. That that does kind of bring me to um, a sort of more futurist point that I, I wanted to kind of get to. because You know, we can end on a positive note every so often. Um hmm. So uh, I guess really there's sort of this indomitable human spirit that's kind of been pushing us forward despite our environment, despite yes. the sun beating down on us, etc. I guess with within our our lifetimes. Well, I guess yeah, yeah. I guess our lifetimes. We're we're getting closer and closer to intergalactic travel. But do you think it's possible, despite our current you know environs, whether whether it be political, <laughs> socioeconomical, etc. I, I think that the the problem we have is
0: that we're still growing as a race, and when you talk about uh, when you talk about you know a uh, uh, a race that's going to go vast distances to come here, obviously they've overcome a lot of that, right? To get here, they would not have uh, been able to apply a, a world's effort to go interstellar. You know, go between the stars. Uh, going between the galaxies is a different thing. Going between the stars is actually more doable. And uh, so I think that uh, that effort is something that remains to be seen what we can do. But I do know that, you know, what CERN's doing and what Livermore did, uh, those things coming together can bring us a potential for uh, UFOs. Applying our skies, if we see, uh, if we see it now, only five thousand years away from Sumeria, where we had you know, the cuneiform language that we were playing with, mm-hmm. okay? Then uh, there's a civilization out there that's ten thousand years mm-hmm. ahead or, or five thousand years ahead who's probably already done it. Keep in mind also that when you look at the possibilities of traveling interstellar like this, you've got a civilization out there that's going to travel be- uh, between the stars. They're going to do it for a reason. They're going to be drawn here. What are they going to be drawn here by? Most likely, they're carbon-based. And as a carbon-based being, okay, there's my bias again, okay, they're going to look for oxygen in an atmosphere, just like we're doing now, just like we've done with every NASA mission. And every NASA mission is tasked with finding life past or present, you know, in the solar system, right? Mm. Yeah. So... They're going to look for oxygen, and we stand out like a brilliant blue blazing beacon of blue, okay? And there's no doubt you can't miss it. Oxygen is in the atmosphere, and it can be seen from thousands of light years away. So that's going to happen, and so they're going to come here, and they're going to find their way probably using a string theory variation called Randall Sundrum 1. Okay, and they're gonna they're gonna actually make their way here by doing this fifth dimensional travel. Um, so you know the guy I'm talking about uh, that wrote the book on it is, is Bob Schroeder, good friend of mine.
1: Oh yeah, mm. we know Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, his book "Solving the UFO Enigma" uh, hard to read, but he's th- the point being is that you know that process he outlines is. I, I went right on board with it because I looked at it and said, Oh, this this is this is it. This is it. This makes so much sense to me. So I think it's right, you know. So
2: getting here is no longer the problem for me. Okay. Mm. That is interesting. Um, I do I do remember being present for one of his talks and talking about KK Graviton specifically. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, Wow, that's, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it well, does. Uh
1: what, not, not to win uh on a non-positive note, but I'm very concerned with uh, how we define advancement. And Mark, you've heard us talk about this in lectures before. But um, it's a matter of uh, I would much rather deal with a civilization that is advanced spiritually and morally as opposed to one that is advanced uh, technologically. I'm always saying this, but who is the most advanced uh, country on Earth in the 1930s, Na- Nazi Germany. Yeah. How uh, that workout out. Uh, there's yeah. also the notion of the Europeans versus the First Nations. You know, uh, being more advanced than how um, that workout out too. Yeah. So uh, I just um, issue a word of caution on that, and uh, I'll leave it at that.
2: That's a good point, Paul. All well, right. I guess the argument could be made that because they're completely alien from us, it's kind of hard to draw parallels. Only because you know you, we don't know their moral yeah, structures. That's true. I mean, Mark, even you—you you said yourself, right—that it's like we—we we like to push our sort of like yeah, you we know project. We project, yeah, we we project stuff, which is natural, right? You know, we're trying yes. to make sense of a situation that we don't really understand. You know, we just do what we know. You know, it doesn't yeah. necessarily make it correct, but you know, yeah.
1: Well, I, well I will, we're bound to find this. out.
2: I will so, say this. Um,
1: we're out of time. Oh. Mark, it's always an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, we'll guys. we talking to you off the air, and uh, thank you. All right, well,
0: thank you, guys. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Hi,
2: right, Ben, take it away. Yes, sir. So, if you're anywhere uh in or near New England, you can uh, take a visit over to Exeter, New Hampshire, for the Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend. That's September 2nd and 3rd. The event benefits local children's charities. Sadly, uh, we have had to bow out this year uh, because of my dad's health. Uh, but please go and support the event if you can. Um, info is at ExeterUFOFestival.org. And the Greater New England UFO Conference is back. Uh, this will be a one-day event that's on uh, November 4th in Lemister, Massachusetts. You can uh, watch for more information on that. And you can visit our show website behind the paranormal.com where you can find nearly 1200 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio and here on WOON AM and FM. Also, you can hear many of these broadcasts on major podcast platforms including uh, Apple iTunes, uh, YouTube and Spotify. Uh
1: download our show app, it's free at behindtheparanormal.com. And browse our books along with those of our guest co-hosts.
2: Indeed. And uh, there's our show website, once again, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can check out our charity page as well, uh, with links to several good causes we've adopted over the years, including Hope for Hildale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Hades Orphans, uh, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. So what's cooking for next week, Ben? Well, uh, what we have going on for next week, uh, that's August 6th. Jeez, we're just powering right through July. Uh, We'll have Earl Gray Anderson back with us of the Mutual UFO Network, um, and he will take us through how MUFON works with the experiencers of UFOs, abductions, and crossover phenomena.
1: And we leave you today with a thought from today's guest. Quote, it is quite possible that as a consequence of the existence of the universe... Life may not be the exception, life may be the rule, unquote. I'm Paul Eno.
2: And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency
1: 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal.